as I was walking over from the teacher village, having been taking some time for reflection. At one point in just a few minutes, five-minute walk, I just stopped at the sound of something right beside me. And there was a deer, no further away than this front row. And we both just stopped. Well, I stopped. And it looked at me. It didn't run away. And I just kind of breathed out, relaxed, tried to just soften my gaze. And just felt the touch of its presence. And there was part of me thinking, I don't need to give a talk. I can stay here. (laughs) It'll be all right. It was so lovely. And then it started eating some, just where it was. And then I thought, oh, okay, maybe I'll give a talk. (laughs) Something so tender about encountering life in its simple beauty and mystery. And for me, it felt vulnerability. It's wide open eyes. But it wasn't afraid, it didn't appear to be afraid. How lovely, what a gift. That sensitivity, that openness, that vulnerability that we cultivate and practice, it's such a, a precious offering in this world. And I know I'm not the only one to have experienced creatures here and at other retreat centers who have kind of got a sense of the human beings as not so threatening as in other contexts. Something about what we do here, it seems to me, means we feel somewhat different in those encounters. And with regard to our sensitivities and our vulnerabilities as human beings, um, also just wanting to acknowledge that for some, real vulnerability around the possibility of forms of generosity that we don't encourage with regard to our, our bugs. Our, bugs use that word, don't you? Yeah. Um, and so we, the staff have asked if we could just give you a reminder that if you have any symptoms of uh, coughing and that sort of thing, that uh, you're invited to wear a mask to, in a way, restrain the impulse of generosity in that regard. Um, and... Uh, In a way, that, that's a, a, a useful segue into the topic that I wish to reflect on this evening. Our well-being is so important to us, but it's not guaranteed. And uh, early this year, in a procedure following a routine screening and health screening in March this year, I had a camera inside my body. And it was really fascinating to be watching the screen. Wow, look what goes on in here. Amazing. And then at one point the doctor who was directing the camera said, I don't like the look of that. And I was like, that's my body. 
So there was something kind of light about it, but also not. And she called, when we were finished, Catherine in, who was outside, and sat us down and told us, well, we don't know until we've tested the uh, tissue samples that we've taken, but I know, because I know what I'm looking at. That's cancer. And there was this time where we knew that this was what was in my body, but we didn't know how far it had gone until further tests. And it was a, quite a tender and vulnerable place to be for both of us, for Catherine and for myself, and just the waiting to see what will be found here. And I found myself so grateful to have spent a considerable amount of time coming back to one of the primary teachings and offerings that the Buddha invited us to engage with. Over the years of my life, to contemplate mortality. And it's this I'd like to speak about this evening. To contemplate that reality which is part of what it means to be and a profound part of what it means to be a human being. The reflecting upon this, upon our mortality, contemplating death, the Buddha spoke of as marana, sati. This is a primary dharma theme and for the Buddha himself, the encounter with Someone who had died was one of the heavenly messengers. There was someone who was ill, someone who was aging, someone who was dead were the first three heavenly messengers he encountered. And then someone who was a a renunciate, spiritual practitioner. And the encounter with these, where he asked of his, his companion, this dead person, will this happen to me? And he was told, yes, you too a subject to this, to aging, to illness, to death. This was what led him to step out of his comfortable life of relative privilege and much good fortune and to make a commitment to spiritual exploration out of which was born the remarkable and transformative teachings that I and you and we are beneficiaries of. And this, this contemplation, this turning our attention to this, this aspect of life, this, I think, is so helpful in so many ways to really let ourselves consider what we're doing, to think carefully about how we're using this precious opportunity, this precious human life. Such that any reminders of this are really gifts to us. Even though they may not always be comfortable. Our society, our world, tends to try and sort of somehow tidy up or sanitize the reality. 
there's not a lot of encouragement to really sit with and contemplate this. The retreat center in England, where Catherine and I are connected, I think we've mentioned Gaia House, it has a, a small graveyard in the middle of it. And when we were going to buy the property or trying to, negotiating to buy, some other um, organizations also wanted to buy it. And they had a lot more money than we did. But they didn't like the fact that there was a cemetery in the middle of it. Well, these, it, used, it was, it was a, um, an abbey, so there were some of the sisters, the nuns of the order, were buried there. And they wanted them to stay there and they wanted their companions, if they wished, to be able to be buried there as well. But the old people's home that wanted to buy it, they didn't think it was a good idea to have a cemetery in the middle. And the family holiday camp that wanted to buy it, they didn't think it was a good idea to have a cemetery in the middle. But Gaia House, the Insight Meditation Buddhist Retreat Centre, we thought it was great. We get to have this place to contemplate. And in the same way, in in Asia, sometimes the... uh, the members of the community, sometimes the monks or the nuns or sometimes lay people, would offer their skeleton to the monastery to be put on display after their death. Just as a reminder that yes, this comes to us. This soft human body is vulnerable. I remember a friend describing to me walking through this large high ceiling room in a stately house and somewhere in England, I don't remember now. And having walked through this large room, which took some time and was admiring the grandness of it all. And then just as they came through the doorway, the ceiling came down. And it was like just so close. Just by good fortune, they were no longer there. And one feels in moments like that the, the tenuousness, the, the closeness of that possibility. The soft human body that we all have, subject to accidents, subject to illness, subject to aging. Ultimately, subject to death. And we all know this. It's not a kind of like, oh, I'll come and tell them and they go, no, really? Wow, you don't say. We know this. And yet there's something about it that we can't easily quite get. There's a section in the Bhagavad Gita, the Indian Hindu spiritual classic um, of teaching, and that uh, there's a conversation between Krishna, who's uh, in this context, Krishna, the god, and um, he's, he's a charioteer for Arjuna, who's sort of like the hero of the story, and um, in the context of quite a lot of battle and danger, um, Arjuna asks Krishna, with your vast vision of the cosmos, your all-seeing comprehension. 
What is the greatest miracle that you see? And Krishna responded, in this vast cosmos, the greatest miracle I have encountered is that while people see others around them dying, they somehow believe it will not happen to themselves. And there's something about that that while we know about this, at some level from the point of view of the sense of self, it can't conceive the world without itself in the middle of it. That's the very nature of it. It arises with that. And it has no basis for comprehending that the world could be without it, even if we know at least some version of the world was here before we were. And it's pretty clear the world will persist when we're no longer here. But there's something about that that's why we're invited to really consider, to think about this, to contemplate this. And, you know, in the time of the Buddha, he encouraged his followers to go and sit in the open charnel grounds where bodies were left to rot, to decay. And to look at them and say, this is what will happen to my body. And, you know, it seems a bit kind of gross in one sense to us and our modern sensibility and our sort of tidying away of things. And and yet there's something powerful about that. This phrase, I too am subject to this. And in terms of that, that I will not escape this. Because we know we're subject to it, but something in us... Uh, when I, um, It was actually, Catherine was sharing that I'd had the very blessed opportunity to visit Joseph yesterday. And it was, it was truly lovely. And there was a really tender part of our conversation when we were talking about both my situation with cancer... And, you know, I'd said to him, yeah, the surgery was successful. Um, the surgeon was really pleased. It's all going pretty well. And the oncologist says, well, you know, 38% chance it could come back, which is good and not so good. It's, you know, it's, it's, and it's like we're just sitting with that together, holding that together. And he says, yeah, you know, I'm just about to enter my 80s. And lots of people die in their 80s. And it's like, yeah, gosh. So we kind of sat together for a little while with our, our shared sense of our own locations in relationship to this. That we, you know, we kind of chuckled a little bit with that sense of how we both realized we liked the bit in the contemplation that says, not just, I am subject to aging, to illness, to death, but the one that follows it that says, I shall not escape this. Because that little bit that think somehow I'll escape it is so strong and just uh, kind of let ourselves be close to that and notice how that is for us and there may be of course amongst us amongst you amongst we friends who have vulnerabilities health conditions or simple location in terms of age that 
brings us closer to this. And just to notice and to let your body breathe with and sense how how it is to contemplate this, to be invited to turn towards this. That is both, in a sense, ordinary, but at the same time, extraordinary. In the same way that the fact that we're here is ordinary and extraordinary. And what does that mean for us then and how we might live? There's a gravestone in a cemetery in Norfolk, which is in the east of England. And it's carved with a message. It says, remember, friend, as you pass by. As you are now, so once was I. As I am now, so you must be. Prepare yourself to follow me. And it's like, wow. It's quite something, isn't it? It's kind of sweet and sort of nice rhymes and that. And then it's also like, whoa, that's a strong message. And it asks us to look at our life, to not take it for granted. To not live as if this will somehow continue forever. And the Buddha invited us to reflect on this. On a daily basis, he said. And perhaps more frequently. To contemplate, I am of the nature to age, to sicken, decay, to die. I will not escape this. And not just on a daily basis, but there's one conversation he has with some monks and he's asking them, so how often do you contemplate your mortality? One says, oh, you know, every day. He says, it's all right, he's not impressed. And the one says, oh, you know, every hour. He says, "Mm, he's not really impressed. It's okay. And one says, you know, with every breath. It's about right. It's like, wow, keeping that close to it? You know, every out-breath that goes out, the next one isn't guaranteed until it comes in. And to see that this really invites us to use well the opportunity of our life that we have, and particularly in this context, uh, the opportunity to hear, to practice, to realize the Dharma, the teachings of wisdom and compassion. This is rare and not forever, this opportunity. This supports a quality of, of some vega, spiritual urgency, the sense of this is what I want to be engaged in. And when we do so, when we turn towards that, somehow the frame of our life is profoundly and beneficially influenced by this. 
ironically, because it seems at first as if it would make for a perhaps less uplifted life to contemplate the fact that we will die and that others around us do. But that's not actually what happens. There's a beautiful quote from the teachings of Don Juan by Carlos Castaneda, his his teacher, Don Juan, speaking to him. He says, The fact of your death is never pressed far enough. It is the only wise advisor that you have. And whenever you feel that everything is going wrong and that you're about to be annihilated, turn to your death and ask if that is so. Your death will tell you that you're wrong, that nothing really matters outside its touch. Your death will tell you, I haven't touched you yet. To ask death's advice is to drop the cursed pettiness that belongs to men and women who live their lives as if death will never touch them. And in those words, that sense, the fact of your death, Sort of like, it's, it's one of the only certainties we have, is this. To live with the awareness of this is to end the pettiness that plagues human beings who live their life as if death will never touch them. So many things that are irritating, so many preferences that we have, in the light of the fact that we're not here forever, Sometimes they just don't seem to have the weight that they otherwise might. There was a experimental workshop that took place in a Texas prison with the death row prisoners. And in prisons, there's, and certainly on death row, there's probably a lot of really tough characters. Tragically, some of them may be there who actually shouldn't be there. But nonetheless, they're kept in solitary confinement generally because of their situation, being on death row. And this experiment basically was to see what would happen if they were allowed to be together and given some simple tasks in the form of a a workshop to do. And they were observed. And it was striking to the people conducting this workshop, how much care and tenderness these tough and sometimes scary-looking characters expressed in their interactions with each other. And so they were asked at some point in the process, so, you know, we're kind of curious to see how much tenderness and kindliness and warmth there is being expressed. And their response in different ways, but essentially was always the same. It's because we we all know that we're going to die. And there's, there's something about that that connects us with our kind heart, with our tenderness, with our care for others who share 
this, this fact of mortality. The Buddha himself once observed when some of his, his followers were engaged in arguments and it seems they got quite nasty. You know, we think, oh, you know, these wonderful followers of the Buddha from the old texts, they must have been, you know, saintly and full of light. But sometimes they're described as stabbing each other with verbal daggers. And it's like, ooh, that sounds painful. And in one such context, he observed once, he said, knowing you will die, how can you quarrel like this? It's like bringing that remembering in. Bringing that remembering in. And the Buddha likewise, in his entering into his spiritual journey, he he saw what he was engaged in up till then and what many of the people around him were engaged in. It's no longer meaningful. He said to himself, why should I, who am subject to aging, to sickness, to death. Why should I spend my life pursuing other things which are also subject to aging, to sickness, to death? Would it not make more sense that being myself subject to aging, sickness and death, that I would seek for that which is not subject to aging, sickness and death? And this was the impetus that took him out in his search. And his, his realization, his discovery, was the fruition of that. In my own life, I was, uh, as a young man, having grown up in New Zealand, uh, I was working in a, in a law firm. Really miserable, but also really too afraid to quit because I didn't have anything else beyond that professional qualification. I didn't have any resource or support behind me or any family that was functioning as such. And I was quite stuck. And then... A dear friend of mine from where I grew up, we used to call him Radar because his ears stuck out at the sides. <laughs> kindly, sweet human being. He, he had a surgical misadventure which involved him, in a way, slowly dying over six months to the point where, in the end, he decided to ask the doctors to take out the tubes and the pipes and switch off the machines because there was almost no quality left. He was addicted to the painkillers. He had no... Yeah, I won't go into the... De- but he decided to die. And I was living at the other end of New Zealand, which isn't that far away by American distance standards, but was on another island and... Uh, he didn't tell me. I imagine he just didn't want to trouble me. But I also didn't reach out to him over that time. I didn't realize what was happening. And when I 
heard that he'd died, I was shocked. I was deeply distressed. His family had been the place where I'd gone when my family had sort of fallen apart when I was in my sort of early teens. And um, it really shocked me, but it also was like this incredible gift because it said to me of my life, do it now, whatever it is that's important to you. And I quit the job and I went travelling and I ended up in Asia. Didn't know what I was doing or what I was looking for, but it found me or I found it and it was this and here I am. And I'm not sure it would have happened if Radar hadn't died. I don't know if I'd have had the courage. And so he's like this benefactor for me and this heavenly messenger for my life. What would we do if we knew we didn't have so long? Or we couldn't guarantee how long we had. Would we make some changes in our life? Even though they might be difficult, uncomfortable or scary? Because they felt true? Or real? Mary Oliver writes, When death comes, like the hungry bear in autumn, when death comes and takes all the bright coins from his purse to buy me and snaps his purse shut, when death comes like the measle pox, when death comes like an iceberg between the shoulder blades, I want to step through the door full of curiosity, wondering, What is it going to be like, that cottage of darkness? And therefore I look upon everything as a brotherhood and a sisterhood. And I look upon time as no more than an idea. And I consider eternity as another possibility. And I think of each life as a flower, as common as a field daisy, and as singular and each name a comfortable music in the mouth, tending as all music does, towards silence. And each body a lion of courage, and something precious to the earth. When it's over, I want to say, all my life I was a bride married to amazement. I was a bridegroom taking the world into my arms. When it's over, I don't want to wonder if I've made of my life something particular and real. I don't want to find myself sighing and frightened or full of argument. I don't want to end up simply having visited this world. So what does it mean to to live in this light, in the light of this reflection and contemplation? To live for the life that we have right now, for the present, for this moment, because this is all that is guaranteed to us. To not live for an uncertain future that may never come, but to take care 
really take care of whatever we can care for in the actions of our lives. To align ourselves with precepts, the refraining from causing harm, is such a relief for the heart. Not that we will be perfect at it, but to know we've done as well we can as we could to not cause harm to others or ourselves. Such a such an important support for the heart. To consider what would be the way you would wish to leave the relationships that you have that are important in your life, if they should have to be left now. Who would you need and wish to say to let them know that you love them, to offer them forgiveness or ask for theirs, to say goodbye to, just because you don't know. When Catherine and I were first married, we would often, when we would be going in sometimes different directions, quite frequently, teaching and other things, but sometimes just when one of us was going out the door down to get some groceries, we would just take a moment and say, I hope I see you again. Something just quite simple but very tender because... It was true. I did hope I would see her again. And just letting in the possibility that it's not for sure that I will. Something really powerful and beautiful in that. And that sense of, well, there will be a time where that will be so. And that, if that's the last thing, that somehow one has honoured one's sense of the care and the connection. And for quite a number of years, I've gone to visit my grandmother, sometimes in India where she's been, and sometimes in, in Sweden where she is mostly now. Well, actually, she's pretty much in Sweden now, she, she's, although she's from India. She, she married a Swede 70-something years ago. And she's 107 years old and still alive. And for years I've been thinking every time, this is probably going to be it. <laughs> I've stopped thinking that in a certain way. It's kind of, there's only so many times you can go, (laughs) but the truth is that, yeah, it will be like that. You know, it's, I mean, she's remarkably well and she's 107. And this year while I was ill with cancer and quite unwell after the surgery I was having chemotherapy. My father was diagnosed with a a fast-moving blood cancer and he lives in New Zealand and I live in England. And he died. And I couldn't go there. I wasn't well enough. I sent him an audio message. That was all I could do. But I was so glad the last time I was in New Zealand, I just some, took some time and spent with him and did what I could to say, because I knew he could die before I came back to New Zealand. Or that even if I was well enough to travel, it could happen before I could get there, because it's a long way. 
And it's interesting to see the sort of completeness that can happen in situations like that. It's not that it's easy or that it isn't still with its rawness or its sorrow, but just the sense of having done what one can in such circumstances as these, that we we have these profound connections with each other, with human beings, friends, family, and at some point they will come to an end. You know, the Buddha said to contemplate this again on a daily basis all that is dear beloved and pleasing to you this you will be parted from and just letting oneself know that so as not to be shocked or surprised and that's something that was really striking when I said about feeling the gratitude for having practiced this contemplation over years and decades, that surprising as the news was, because I was fit and healthy and didn't have any symptoms, it was a a routine screening process that took me to the point where the cancer was found, which was a blessing. But it wasn't a shock. There was no part of me that thought, what? How could that happen to me? It was still a surprise. It was still like, oh no. But it wasn't like, why why me? It's like, of course. It's a body. This can happen. And when we reflect on, when we take in this, when we consider this kind of, what we also feel by allowing ourselves to feel the tenuousness of our continuity, the tenuousness of our still still here, another day, another sitting, another breath, we also feel its preciousness and its mysteriousness that we so easily take for granted. It's like, you know, it's like, what is it that allows this to continue? Rather than thinking about why should it not, or why should it, or would it come to us, what is it that allows this to be this? The mystery, the preciousness, the incredibleness. Together with having a grandmother who's almost twice my age and still full of vitality when she's not sleeping, which is quite a bit of the time, but when she's awake, she's really there. Still does her yoga, still takes herself off to the bathroom. Amazing. It's my grandmother and two years ago my little sister died. And... It was like she had a cancer that we knew because it's one of those cancers which it's pretty much for sure. People don't live very long with it. And I was with her, with my mum in the last days in the hospital in Stockholm where she lived. And she's with her in those last breaths. I don't... I. Not before being with someone in their very last moments. Maybe you've had that privilege, but a sense of just this being with this, this, this is this person who's been part of my life ever since I was two years old. 
And she's there and she's breathing out. And then there's my mum and I, we're holding her and each other and she doesn't breathe in. We look at each other and then she breathes in. She breathes out again. And it goes like this for quite some time. And it's like, it's like we're on the edge of something here. But we don't know. And the out-breath goes out. And we wonder, will another one come in? Will another one come in? And then at some point, after a while, the out-breath has gone out and it hasn't. Another one hasn't come in and we think, that might be it. But there was no moment where we knew, oh, that's it. When it happened, it was only at some point after. It was like, ah, wow, she's gone. But she's still warm. She's not breathing. And just something about the tenderness of that and the mystery of... She was here and she's not. And she is because this is her body. To be close in those moments with someone we feel this, this preciousness, this beauty, this mystery that we can perhaps notice, sense and become vulnerable to being touched by not just in such places of, of the ending of someone's life but actually just in the, in the presence of life. And what does that ask of our life? How would we live if we were close to this? Stephen Levine in his book, A Year to Live, which is a, in a way, a manual for, actually there's also a course now that one can do that works, but the book was a, a, a manual for choosing to live for a year as if you would die at the end of it and making all your choices as if you knew your life ended it just as a practice. And it's not something I've actually practiced in that form, but I've heard from people it's profound and beautiful. And in this book, which I've read, um, he says, towards the end, he says, in the end... His understanding was love was the only rational act of a lifetime. And I love it because sort of we think of love and rationality as somehow opposed. It's like you do what makes sense or you go with your heart. But actually, when it comes right down to the essential elements of being alive, the only thing that is rational, the only thing that really makes sense is love, is kindness, is care. And together with with kindness, with love, what what makes sense in this light equally is to practice wakefulness. The Buddha said of this, wakefulness is the path to the deathless. The heedless live as if already dead. 
To live unconsciously is to simply repeat patterns and habits and reactivities. To lose the freshness of the possibility of an aliveness born from immediacy rather than entangled in history. And in some ways the real danger is to live on autopilot. To be unconscious and habitual is not to be fully alive. So this isn't a judgment of the times and the ways which we, and certainly I am too, of course, at times habitual and unconscious. But seeing that that isn't an expression of the full possibility of being alive. And so we're invited to contemplate this, to turn towards this again and again. And we might see and we might sense that it's scary at some level. It's threatening. Although, of course, sometimes, you know, we might approach it from the same point of view as... um, Oh, now I've just forgotten who said this thing I was going to tell you. Anyway, someone whose name you probably remember, if I could remember it, he said, I'm not afraid of death. I just don't want to be there when it happens. Woody Allen. Thank you. I've probably quoted it here before I remembered the name, but yes, memories. Anyway, thank you. Woody Allen said that. Yeah. And we kind of see that. Yeah. You know, because it's, probably going to be difficult, certainly is for some. We have got no guarantee of what that will be like. But at the same time, the sense of, of fear of death, it's, it's not actually the fear of our death because we don't know what that will be like. We've never been there. Well, maybe some remarkable human being remembers having been there, but I certainly don't. So it's actually our fear is of the thought of death, the idea of death. And what is that? Death represents an absence of a reference point for the self, for the sense of me. That's part of why we can't quite believe that it will happen to me because who, where would I go? I can't no longer be the centre of all of this from that place. And it's scary because it's profoundly, not just unknown, but unknowable. And so much of where we experience fear in ways that can be so painful at times and difficult for us, at some level it comes back to the fear of death, the fear of annihilation, the sense that if things go wrong, then... Ultimately, our demise is the the end point of it. And again, this is understandably scary for us, but it may not actually be that there is a danger in the terms that we're conceiving. To be open to the uncertainty of what this involves, I think, is a courageous 
and a profound practice. Because the certainties we might have are really unsustainable. And both the idea that death is just everything comes to an end, annihilation, or the idea that something after death continues, whatever way that might be. They're the two kind of options, I think. Either there's nothing or something. It either everything comes to an end or something continues. Depending on how we feel about being alive, both of them might seem like a consolation or a scary outcome. But the truth is that we cannot and do not know. And the only death we can actually engage with from here is the entry into the unknown. To enter into this moment fully, we have to die to our past, to our history, to the stories, to the identities born of what was. And to see what that is for us. It's not easy. Because to lose what we have, to lose our sense of continuity, to lose the sense of past and future, of everything indeed, is to be touched by our sense of deep loss that we have within us. And the grief that comes with that Just a few years ago, I read a story of a young man, a boy perhaps we'd say, early teenage, who playing with his friends got his foot stuck under a railway track. And they couldn't free him. And he called his father on his phone. He said, Dad, I'm stuck on the railway track. Help! There's a train coming. And his dad says... I'm coming. The train is coming. Dad is coming. The boy is stuck on the track. The train gets there first. And I just try and feel for myself, what, what is that to be? I don't imagine they hung the call up. But for the boy, everything in what it is to have a father is your dad has to save you here. And for the father, everything in being a father is, you've got to save your boy. And it doesn't happen. He dies. And there are so many stories like this in the world. Of course, we know the stories of loss and of grief. And something about, for me, that touches me where it's like they both knew what was happening here. For perhaps just a few moments, they would have both realized this is going to happen. And yet they were still in contact. And what is it for us to stay close to this? To not turn away because it's scary or it's threatening. Our mortality 
evokes grief, really the loss of whatever that is precious to us that we've already lost in our lives. Whatever we have loved or cherished that we've been parted from already in our lives. Whatever that may be, persons, situations, capacities and functionalities of our own that may no longer be with us. And in turning towards it, we may be start to also sense the deeper loss. Perhaps the deepest loss of our connection with the, the depths and the mystery of life. So far as we have found ourselves drawn away from this, turned into externally oriented perspectives, materially driven preoccupations, to lose connection, to lose the resonance with the the sacred, the dharma at the heart of our life, which in some ways we can understand as having taken birth and unconsciousness and unawareness, avidya, which we've spoken of, as the root cause of suffering. And this taking birth and unconsciousness, this loss that I think is there in the very heart of a human being, that at the same time learns yearns to rediscover, that calls us into spiritual exploration and practice because something in us remembers or knows or hasn't completely lost contact with this. And this contemplation of our mortality, it's the invitation to let go. It's the call to let go, letting go, releasing our hold on life. This is the, the path of freedom. Realizing that all will be taken one day. We can kind of get ahead of the curve so far as we practice letting go. We practice non-grasping. We practice generosity. It becomes natural and spontaneous in the light of contemplating our mortality and the mortality of everything around us. And as we become more able to let go, as this capacity for releasing deepens in us, in the letting go, in the profound letting go of everything when we no longer hold to anything this is the realm of discovery this is the realm of the deathless and we can be touched by we can know this we can awaken to this I was practicing in, in Budgaya, in the, the Buddhist monastery, a Thai monastery in Budgaya, in my early years of 
Dharma exploration, I was one year particularly enjoying the puppies in the monastery. And the monasteries are kind of like um, refuges for old people who don't have a retirement plan and for stray animals and chickens and dogs and as well as monks and nuns and meditators. And I was just really enjoying these puppies. And I'd been there the year before and I'd enjoyed them there too. And at some point as they'd be running around and you know, you'd be walking and they'd come and run and bump into your foot to see if you're on balance, you know, or if you put your plate with your lunch down for a moment, they'd come and help you with it in case you'd taken too much. They were just so lovely. I just delighted in them. And then at some point it struck me, I realized that watching these puppies, I'd assumed they were the same puppies I'd been with last year. And it's like, well, of course. How foolish. But it was like it it shocked me because of the power of that assumption. And seeing it clearly, it was like, huh, those puppies are all gone. They've grown up or they've died. They're certainly not these puppies. But something hasn't changed. And this, this kind of perspective, this understanding, ah, puppies come and go. But puppy nature is undying, unchanging. And in our practice, we're invited to look deeply in to what it is to be here. What is it that is revealed? If we understand that all which arises will pass, All which is born will die. But what is not born does not die. And this we can become interested to understand. What is it that is revealed in this life that is here? that somehow makes sense of that part of us that doesn't quite believe in death. Because something in what we sense perhaps intuits what the Buddha's teachings point to. The release of the human heart and mind from the grip and the binding and all things that come and go are somehow held within the truth and the dharma from which and through which they arise and the Buddha nature we could say all things share.
So I had a poem I was going to finish with, but I've been talking for a while. How are you doing? Anyone up for another two minutes? Feel free to move your legs or your arms or if you need to just adjust. I'd like to share this poem with you. It was given to me by one of the staff members here when when Catherine and I were living here in the mid-90s. I was a resident teacher. And uh, it's written, or the author is Red Hawk, a Native American elder, who writes, The time comes when it is easier to die. We have to go deeper inside, like a tired miner chipping through stone. We have to dig even when we have had enough, and it is no longer worth it to get up out of the bed. The morning is cold, the grey clouds move in low like a flock of dark crows over a picked field. That is when we have to go deeper, through another hard layer of pain. You have to be relentless to make it in this place, because it will be relentless with you. It will never stop beating and grinding, wearing you down with one more thing gone wrong. Friends will die, the nerves will fail. Others will cease to be thrilled with you and your sorry efforts to hold it all together will come to nothing. You will still tremble in the leg, go grey and dim in the face, leak more every year in your yellowed shorts. (laughs) Don't be in a hurry to pack it in. The time will come when it is easier to die than to dig. The trick is to find the gold before death finds you, and then to sit there in the heart where you cannot be taken, while death storms and rages all around you, stealing everything in sight, but only left holding a bag full of bones. So let's sit quietly for a moment or two together. So may we all, in our practice, find the courage to contemplate deeply our mortality. May we live in the light of awareness. And may we realize the deathless for our own well-being, for the welfare of all beings and the well-being of all that lives.
Thank you for your practice, for your presence, for being here. It's time for some brief walking, or longer if you wish, and supper is in about seven minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.